All right, everybody, uh, Dr. Andy Woods here. I want to welcome you to another pastor's point of view. Today is September the 10th, 2021. This is pastor's point of view number 179. Uh, the last time I was with you, we were bringing you a prophecy update and we had some scheduling issues and some time constraints and some interruptions. And so I didn't have a chance to complete my laundry list. And so I thought what I would do today is complete uh, what I wanted to talk about last time. We were talking about a lot of things in the news related to God setting the stage for the end times drama. And one of the things we were talking about was the public school system in the United States. You might say, well, what does that have to do with Bible prophecy? It actually relates to Bible prophecy, as I'll explain in just a second, because it relates to the denigration and deterioration of American exceptionalism. Not the idea that America is um, somehow, you know, superior compared to everyone else in the world. American exceptionalism is the idea that America is the exception to the rule. You know, for example, here we are in the United States, still functioning over 200 years later, under the exact same form of government that we started with, with the adoption of our Constitution. That is exceptional in the sense that that is the exception to the rule. You know, compare that track record to France or any other nation uh, of the time period of colonial America. And you'll see very fast that most governments of the world are functioning under their 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, etc. form of government. America is the exception to the rule. And obviously, you can't bring in the new world order unless American exceptionalism is destroyed. People will never look to some sort of global body or global entity as the savior as long as America remains the beacon of hope and light to our world. And one of the things that I believe currently is destroying American exceptionalism and therefore setting the stage for the one world government of the Antichrist is the current trajectory of our public school system. And uh, we need look no further than the following news article from Fox News, written by Emma Colton, uh, August 30th, fairly recently, 2021. The title of it is California Teacher Boasts Not Having the American Flag. She tells students to pledge allegiance to the gay pride flag, and the school district is now investigating the incident. Apparently, as I speak, this particular public school teacher is under investigation, and my question is, well, what took you so long? The only reason they're investigating her is there's now a public outcry against some statements that she made uh, here I'm looking at a screenshot called Libs of TikTok, where you can actually go and watch her make the boasts that is recorded in this article. 
It says, teacher mocks the American flag and suggests to students that they can say the pledge of allegiance to the pride flag. And she's so sort of uh, jovial and nonchalant as she's making these statements that it infuriates you because she is chipping away at something you need for a country to exist independently you have to have a common culture. And she's tearing that down. Uh, In fact, in the midst of this uh, public display that she herself posted, and that's why she's in trouble, because she became, she went public um, with what her true sentiments are. She breaks out, as as you watch this, in maniacal laughter. And there's a screenshot of her you know, sort of giggling and smirking, you know, as she's making these boasts. But what is it that she is advocating here? Let's read a little bit from the article. It says a California school district is investigating a teacher after she posted a video admitting that she encouraged her students to pledge allegiance to a gay pride flag after she removed the American flag from her classroom. She says, quote, okay, so during the third period, we have announcements and they do the Pledge of Allegiance. Close quote. The teacher identified as Kristen Pitson of Newport Mesa School District in Orange County said in a video posted to social media. She says, quote, I always tell my class to stand if you feel like it. Don't stand if you feel like it. Say the words of the Pledge of Allegiance if you want to, but you don't have to say those words. Her quote continues, except for the fact that my room does not have a flag. Close quote. And the article picks up. She explained that she removed the flag during the pandemic and then whispered to the camera, quote, because it made me uncomfortable, close quote. The article goes on and it says she went on to say that one of her students asked where they should look during the Pledge of Allegiance since there is no American flag in the classroom. She says, quote, in the meantime, I tell this kid we don't have a flag in the class that you can pledge your allegiance to. And he looks around and goes, oh, that one and points to the pride flag. I guess this would be the gay pride flag. So here's a teacher that really has no room for the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, Students really aren't required to say the Pledge of Allegiance. It just depends on how they feel at any given moment. And she took uh, COVID as an opportunity to take the American flag out of her classroom, which by the way, we are all, at least in Orange County, subsidizing through our tax money. It's interesting to me how COVID is being used as a pretext to change so many things. Uh, Mail-in balloting, mail-in ballots. We got to have that now because of COVID. And then the American flag, a teacher apparently feels that she has the right to take down the flag because of COVID. 
So there's no American flag in the classroom. The students are supposed to say the flag salute. All the kids are looking around confused. Well, what flag should we salute? And she points to the gay pride flag. Uh, This is something that is happening in the public schools. Now, how is this prophetically significant? It's prophetically significant because it involves the erasure of a divine institution. Uh, Here is our chart or list of the various divine institutions. You find all of these in early Genesis. These are kind of foremost on my thinking since currently, as of the time of this recording, we at Sugarland Bible Church have been doing uh, at least 50 sermons, verse by verse, through Genesis 1 through 11. These are things, when you study Genesis 1 through 11 in its historical context, and take Genesis 1 through 11 as narrative history, which it is, you discover that the Creator Himself has built into the fabric of fallen creation various divine institutions to help preserve humanity in the midst of its sin and fallenness. So the divine institutions are conscience. You see in parenthesis the scripture verses where you can find those in the Bible. Marriage in the family. Then comes the institution of labor. And then comes the institution of human government. And then when you get into Genesis 11, you'll see the institution of nationalism. God wants humanity organized according to different nation states and not according to global government. The answer to global government, Genesis 11, which was uh, the story of the Tower of Babel or man's first attempt at one world government, the antidote to world government, what stops world government is the doctrine of the individual nation state. So if you want to bring in world government, you have to erase the doctrine of the nation state. Now notice this slide here, the sine qua non, which simply means without which there is not. What is the sine qua non, if you will, of nationhood? Uh, What does someone need to have or what do a group of people need to have in order to have a distinct nation? Well, you need to have four things. Number one, you have to have the same currency. Number two, you have to have the same language. Number three, you have to have a common culture. And number four, you have to have enforceable national borders. And as you study those four things, what you see is every single one of them is under great assault, particularly here in the United States, because the name of the game is to shrink the United States, to make it less than what our founding fathers intended, to make it less than exceptional. And once the United States deteriorates, then the path is paved for global governance. And this teacher, with all of her smirking and joking, and of course, you know, denigration of the flag, and essentially telling people, you know, the flag of the United States is not important. What's important is the uh, gay pride flag. Essentially, what she is doing is she is denigrating number three there, 
common culture. And so you have to pay very close attention to what is happening in the public school classroom because these teachers, to a large extent, being uh, energized and empowered by the teachers' unions, which, by the way, is a key constituent of the Democratic Party, are playing a tremendous role in destroying the common culture of the United States. I mean, if there is no common flag, there is no common culture. If there is no common culture, then you don't have the United States as an independent nation. You lose American exceptionalism, America declines, and that's exactly what the globalists want because it the decline of the United States is preparatory for global governance. Just as God introduced nations in Genesis 11 to stop Nimrod's Tower of Babel, Satan's goal is to reduce the influence of nations to pave way once again for world government through the Tower of Babel. Um, you might remember a few pastors' points of view ago. I don't remember the exact one. You could go back into the archives and review. We had a picture of this basketball team during March Madness. The Georgetown Hoyas, uh, coached by the legendary Patrick Ewing, started to win a few games. They didn't get too far, but they won a few games, uh, making it to the tournament. Did pretty well, if I remember right, early on in the tournament, but lost pretty fast after that. But there's a picture of them, and they're all on their knee. I mean, every single player on the court, every single player on the team, I should say, right down to the coach, on their knee, um, not standing during the national anthem. Now, why are they all on their knee? They're all on their knee because of something we're going to talk about in a minute called critical race theory, where they see the American flag and the national anthem, etc., as symbols of oppression. And this is a, a scene now that's become far too common in sports. It's happening in the classroom, as I tried to show a little earlier. It's happening relative to virtue signalers and sporting activities, and it's a denigration of the national anthem, the flag, the common culture of the United States, people not accepting the common culture of the United States, which destroys the nation state and paves the way for global governance. So in this particular series of studies that we're doing, both last week and this week, number 178 and 179, we're doing this prophecy update where we've covered Afghanistan Iran, Babylon, the road to totalitarianism as people are now being coerced against their will to receive the jab, religious exemption or no religious exemption. And I showed you last time how the state of New York is leaning in the direction of no religious exemption and how this preparation for world government finds itself in the public school system. Let me take you here to number six on this list, and it has to do with CRT, otherwise known as critical race theory. Critical race theory is destroying the common culture of the United States by 
deceiving people into believing that the United States is an oppressive regime. Uh, in other words, we have the wealth that we have because we oppress someone else, a racial minority or the Indians or whatever, to get it. And therefore, racism is in the genetics or the DNA of the United States. It's what's called institutional racism, systemic racism. The argument is being made here by CRT, critical race theory, not that there are racists in the United States. If that's what they were saying, I would be on board with that. Because, of course, from place to place, you can always find bad apples in, the, in a barrel. There are racists anywhere you go. And we need to speak out against those racists. But that's not what critical race theory is arguing. What it's arguing is the United States is institutionally racist from its foundation. It's racist from its genetics. And therefore, the structure of the United States needs to be toppled and replaced with something better. And what is that better thing they want to replace it with? They want to replace it with a planned economy, a centralized economy, submission to global governance, Marxism, one world Marxism. And you can't do that unless you convince people that what we currently have is terrible. Now, obviously, when you go back into the history of the United States, as you go back into the history of any country, there are some dark spots and blights, if you will, on the foundation of our country. But you see, the critical race theory people will never talk about the steps that we have made as a country and as a culture to correct the wrongs of the past. They don't talk about, for example, the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves, issued, by the way, by a man named Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, Notice that the Republican Party was, was started to stop slavery, the party of Abraham Lincoln. They don't talk to you about the Civil War and all of the whites as well as the blacks that died for the cause of, you know, ridding the United States of slavery. And they talk all, all on and on and on about structural biases, systemic biases, uh, the corrupt constitution of the United States, and they never talk about the 13th and the 14th and the 15th amendments to the United States Constitution, which, uh, by the way, were post-Civil War amendments. They went through the proper ratification process that's necessary to amend the Constitution. And when you study that, I believe it's in Article 5, of our Constitution, it's a very difficult burden to meet. They don't talk about those post-Civil War amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that were created to rectify the slavery of the past and the vestiges of slavery. They don't talk to you about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, which was designed to rectify and remedy the Jim Crow South, and they don't talk to you about Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program, which literally transferred $5 trillion from one race to another 
on the pretext of helping the disadvantaged. So there is no country on the face of the earth that's done more than the United States in terms of rectifying and remedying whatever deficiencies were in our past. But you see, the, the critical race theory don't does, never talks about that. They just talk about how we're racist from our genetics and therefore the whole system needs to be toppled and replaced with something else. Uh, it's another tool used to get rid of the current structure of the United States in prep preparation for the new world order of the future. So we have now almost like a poison moving into our institutions, into our corporations, and very sadly into some of our churches, where now even evangelicals are taking the Bible out of context to act as if critical race theory is somehow biblical. And the, the, the name to think about as we contemplate this is the picture of this man here. I've got a picture of him. His name is uh, Antonio Gramsci. He was um, an Italian communist. And essentially what he contributed to the entire um, progress of communism was the idea that the way to bring communism into a country is you don't do it through force. That's not going to bring in lasting change. What you have to do is you have to alter the value system of that country in such a way that it's now sympathetic or it's conducive to um, communism coming in. So you have to go into entertainment, you have to go into media, you have to go into the theater, you have to go into the arts, you have to go into academia, you have to go into education, you have to go into the business world, you have to go into the boardroom, you have to go into the leadership of a corporation. Very sadly, you have to go into the seminaries, you have to go into the churches. And the goal is not so much to turn everybody into full-blown communists, that would be impossible, but to alter the value system of a culture in such a way that when communism rears its ugly head, people won't think it's that bad because their uh, culture has been changed. So this is what's happening in the world of Christianity and religion as now critical race theory has come up with a definition of Jesus, who is not so much the sin bearer and savior of the world. He's not so much the creator, the redeemer, and the resurrected Messiah, and the one who's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Rather, this Jesus is sort of an agrarian social reformer. So if you're spoon-fed that from the seminary and it trickles down into the pulpit, um, when communism rears its ugly head you'll, and the, the uh, leadership of communism coming in will talk about the redistribution of wealth and all of these kinds of things, it kind of looks like, oh, well, that fits with our new definition of Jesus. Isn't this great? They're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> and that's the contribution of uh, Antonio Gramsci. That's why he spoke of the long march through the institutions. And he wrote all of these things down from prison when you study his 
background. And uh, what's so interesting is he wrote something called The Prison Notebooks, kind of a demonic replica, in my opinion, of Paul's prison letters, <laughs> you know, the books of uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon that Paul wrote from a Roman prison. And it's very interesting that his work was translated into English by a scholar who is now deceased, but his name is, you might recognize this name, uh, Buttigieg. Buttigieg is the father of Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, who was a contender prior to Biden winning the primary he was a contender for the presidency of the United States from the Democratic Party. Uh, that's how close communism is knocking at the door of the United States. But anyway, that's the uh, contribution of Antonio Gramsci. And then another communist that you need to understand is a man named Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky of course, is the spiritual father and mentor of Hillary Clinton. And Saul Alinsky came up with something called um, community organizing. Now, that should ring a bell because Obama, who was elected twice to the president of the United States, popularly elected, um, he actually, when you look at his resume, prior to him becoming first a United States senator and then then the president, had absolutely nothing on his resume to justify this new role of political leadership. I mean, he's one of the first people we've ever elected to that high office with no resume at all. So what was his only resume in Chicago? It was being a community organizer. Well, what's a community organizer? Well, you've got to go back to Saul Alinsky for that. Saul Alinsky explains what he means in his book, Rules for Radicals. And when you look at the title page and the preface early on in the book, you discover that he dedicated this book to Lucifer. <laughs> Shows you where his head is at. Uh, Alinsky says, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all, from all our legends in history, and who knows where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. And he dedicates this to none other than Satan or Lucifer himself. Saul Alinsky introduced the idea of what's called hegemony. And he says, this is how communism can topple any host culture. There are people in the culture that have more influence or power than other people. Karl Marx called it the battle between, you know, the proletariat, working class, and the bourgeoisie, if I'm pronouncing that right, the ruling class. And it's largely patterned after what Jesus said in Matthew 12, around verse 25. A kingdom cannot stand against itself. A nation that's divided with itself 
cannot stand. And it's interesting how communists capitalizing perhaps on what Christ accurately said, have taken advantage of that truth. And they said, you have to go into the host culture and you have to get the working class upset at the hegemony or the bourgeoisie, get the proletariat and the bourgeoisie at war with each other. And if you get them in conflict with each other, then your job of bringing in Marxism is easier because you've got a culture divided against itself and a nation that's divided against itself cannot stand, and you can topple it and, of course, replace it with something better. I put better in quotes because what they think is better will be hell on earth for everybody except those running the system. They'll get by just fine, but the rest of us will be turned into slaves, will be turned into bondage. And this is what they want to bring in. This is, by the way, what the word progressive means. When people use the word progressive, you have to ask a simple question. What are they progressing towards? In other words, you don't like the existing structure of the United States. What do you want to replace it with? What do you want to progress towards? The answer is the new world order, one world Marxism, one world communism, And that can't come into existence until America as a free and independent and prosperous nation state is toppled. And so what Alinsky says is, well, what if you have a situation where the working class and the ruling class are not at war with each other? Well, he says you have to go into a culture and you have to discover the areas of resentment between the two. And we live in a fallen world, and there's always going to be those areas of resentment. And you have to compound those. Uh, You have to inflame those. You have to rub those raw. Uh, Whatever the existing tension is, you have to um, hyperbolize it. And if you hyperbolize it, you'll get the two at war with each other very fast, the working class against the hegemony. And then you'll have a culture divided against itself and therefore bringing in uh, one world communism or in this case, communism to the United States will be easier. You can't really understand the current trajectory of our nation until you understand what Alinsky said and his contribution to communist thought. And also you can't really understand it until you understand what Gramsci said and his contribution to communist thought. If you understand those two, then you'll understand the playbook. So the problem with the United States, though, from the communist perspective, is we don't have a lot of class warfare in this country. Why is that? Because there's a lot of economic mobility from one socioeconomic level to the next. You can America is a rags-to-riches story for many people around the world. You can start at the very bottom, and through hard work and ingenuity and innovativeness, you could rise to the very top, and the opposite could happen. You could be born with a silver spoon in your mouth, and through bad choices and being lazy and not being tough and not being smart and not being a good steward, you can go right to the very bottom. America is different 
in comparison to the other nations of the earth where there is great economic mobility. And so class warfare does not sell in the United States like it sells in other parts of the world where if you are born in a certain socioeconomic status, you're virtually stuck there the rest of your life. So it's hard to inflame you know, the proletariat against the, the bourgeoisie in the United States. But I'll tell you something that does sell in the United States, racial tension sells. And the reason it sells is because America in its past, even though it's made many steps to correct it, in fact, America has made more steps to correct any blemishes in its past than any nation I know of. But America has that lingering resentment between the races. And so according to the Alinsky model, you go into a race of people that have been disfavored in the past, and you don't tell them that you're living on the liter- uh, winning lottery ticket. You don't tell them that, you know, you're living in the freest and most independent and prosperous nation on planet Earth, and you can rise to the very top. You don't tell them that. What you tell them is somebody is holding you back. Racism, which is ingrained into the fabric of the United States, is holding you down. And you take Whatever lingering resentment exists from the pre-Civil Rights era, the pre-Civil War era, and you harp on it, and you talk about it, and you compound it, and you exasperate it, and it won't be long until you create a race war in the United States. Then you've got a country that is now divided amongst itself And it topples very, very fast and very, very easy. And that is the significance of critical race theory. That's what critical race theory is designed to do. So with all of that being said, looking here at Roman numeral uh, six, we have this article from the New York Post by Christopher F. Rufo, August 19th, 2021, and the title of it is Toddlers Are Racist (laughs) and Other Insights from Bank of America's Woke Training. So if you happen to be an employee with Bank of America, then you are subjected to mandatory indoctrination in critical race theory. And what is happening in the Bank of America Corporation is a microcosm of the poison that's being spread all over the institutions of the United States. From the article, quote, Bank of America Corporation has implemented a racial re-education program that claims the United States is a system of white supremacy and encourages employees to become woke at work, instructing white employees in particular to, quote, decolonize your mind and cede power to people of color, close quotes. Quoting right out of the manual that Bank of America employees are subjected to. Continuing with the article, this year, Bank of America executive Charles Bauman or Bowman announced a new equity initiative in action 
and partnership with the United Way of, of Central Carolinas. Rufo says, according to the documents I have reviewed, Bank of America executives launched the initiative by encouraging employees to participate in a 21-day race training challenge funded in part by the Bank of uh, by the Bank of America and built on the principles of critical race theory. I'm going to describe for you what these employees have to sit through or else they lose their jobs. Before I keep reading, let me add this. You notice the word equity here. This is an equity initiative. Today, when you hear the word equity, you have to think in your mind, that's a synonym for Marxism. They're not using the word equality. They're using the word equity. What's the difference? Equality guarantees that we all have equal opportunity in terms of our starting place. Equity means we should all end up equal in terms of results, which is obviously unrealistic because some people have more energy than others. Some people have more God-given abilities than others. Some people have more drive and ambition than others. Some people have more talent in certain areas than others. But the goal here is equity, not guaranteeing everybody equal opportunity in terms of a starting point, but managing the outcome, managing the results. That, that is nothing more than a planned economy and a synonym for Marxism. Continuing with the article describing what these Bank of America employees are subjected to. On the program's first day, Bank of America teaches employees that the United States is a, quote, racialized society, close quote, that uses, quote, race to establish and justify systems of power, privilege, disenfranchisement and oppression, close quote, continuing with the article. According to the training program, all whites, quote, regardless of one's socioeconomic class background or other disadvantages, are living a life with white skin privileges, close quote. Continuing with the article, even children are implicated in the system of white supremacy. According to the according to the program materials, white toddlers, listen to this, white toddlers develop racial biases from ages three to five and should be actively taught to recognize and reject the smoke of white privilege. Stopping my reading of the article just for a second and commenting here. You'll notice that even children from age three to five are presumed to be racist. And the purpose of this kind of training is to unroot this in adults, racism, which they obviously inherently learned from a very early age. Uh, how do they know that toddlers between three to five years of age already have racial biases? Well, they don't know that. But critical race theory assumes it's true, because if it's not assumed to be true, then everybody can't be indoctrinated into a new way of thinking. And this new way of thinking, of course, is to become open to equity, 
where not just the starting point is equal, but how we end up is equal as well. Marxism. Continuing with the article, over the next three days, the Bank of America immerses employees in full-spectrum critical race theory, not least framing all white people as oppressors and all racial minorities as irreproachable. Quote, and when I say quote as I'm reading the article, that means that the author is quoting from the actual material that the bank employees uh, are being subjected to. Quote, racism in America idolizes white physical features and white values as supreme over those of others. Close quote. The article continues. As a result of being part of the, quote, dominant culture, close quote, whites are more likely to, quote, have more limited imagination, close quote. Let me comment. Here it says white people have limited imagination. Isn't that a racist statement? Seems like it to me because it's stereotyping all Caucasians as having limited imagination. What else? They experience fear, anxiety, guilt, or shame, and they contribute to racial tension, hatred, and violence, and react in broken ways. Close quote. The article continues. People of color, on the other hand, can't be racist because, quote, racism is used to justify the position of the dominant group and to uphold white supremacy and superiority, close quote. Therefore, the discussion guide claims, these are facilitators that are gearing the discussion, in other words, toward their preordained outcome. These are the conclusions they want people to come to. Quote, reverse racism and discrimination are not possible, close quote. See what they're trying to get people to do? To hate the hegemony to make it seem as if one group is holding back another group. And that's part of the genetics of the D, uh, and the DNA of the United States, they say. Let's create a culture that's at war with itself. And as Alinsky said, quoting Jesus in a perverted way, a house divided against itself cannot stand. The country will be weakened, and we can bring in our ultimate result, which prophetically we know is world government. Uh, it continues, and it says, uh, quoting the article, people of color, on the other hand, can't be racist. We, I think we already mentioned that. It goes on, and it says on days five and six, so this is a projected educational program sp spanning days. On days five and six, the banking giant encourages white employees to confront their white privilege and white fragility to discover why they are on the privileged spectrum, close quote. As part of the program, Bank of America employees take a series of diagnostic tests in which they assess their racial and sexual identities, check a series of boxes to identify their, quote, white privilege, close quote, and probe racist attitudes that can contribute to their white fragility, white fragility in quotes. Interrupting myself again, I bet you the people that originally in life wanted to be involved in finance and banking 
and went to school to get their MBAs and their degrees in finance had no idea that ultimately what would happen is part of the process of being involved in banking and finance would be subject, being subjected to mandatory indoctrination called critical race theory where you're taught to believe that your country is evil from its genetics and DNA, from its inception. Continuing on with the article in days 7 through 16. Bank of America covers a laundry list of progressive concepts and policies and priorities, including... Here's some buzzwords, quote, microaggressions, racial trauma, the abolishment of the police, the school to prison pipeline, and environmental justice, close quote. The article continues, the training claims that racist microaggressions can contribute to post-traumatic stress disorder in black Americans and that, quote, racism can be just as devastating as gunfire or sexual assault, close quote. Continuing with the article, America's economy is described as a cased or caste system with, quote, African-Americans being kept exploited and geographically separate, close quote. The American policing system, according to the, to, to the materials, was founded on, quote, slave patrols whose task was to capture, control, and brutalize enslaved people. This is, quote, woven into the DNA. I want you to hear those words very carefully. This is woven into the DNA of U.S. society and according to activists in the training module can be solved only through defunding and even the abolishment of the police, close quote. So in other words, when George Floyd was brutally mistreated, the problem wasn't the fact that a racist cop or a group of racist cops perpetrated this injustice. If that's all the argument was, I'm on board with that. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying the reason this happened is not because of a racist cop, but because of a racist institution, which has been corrupted, drawing its genetics and DNA back to the Declaration of Independence. This is what they mean by systemic racism. The issue isn't a racist cop. The issue is a racist police force and a racist United States of America that has to be toppled and replaced with a progressive utopia. This is how critical race theory is being used to set the stage for the destruction of the nation state here in the United States and prepare the way for one world communism or Marxism, which Bible prophecy clearly tells us is on the horizon. Continuing with the article, in the final days, I mean, think of being a B of A employee and sitting through this mandatory propaganda. Think how your defenses would be worn down. It says in the program's final days, the Bank of America encourages employees to become, quote, woke at work. And practice, quote, ally, allyship, 
participants must admit that there were, quote, words and actions, this is right out of the manual, are inherently shaped and influenced by systemic oppression, close quote, and must commit to, quote, doing the inner work to figure out ways to acknowledge how they participate in oppressive systems, close quote. Notice this expression here right out of the manual. Now I'm commenting, interrupting the article just for a minute. Words and actions. I mean, what they're after is what you say, what you think, and how you act. And they don't want anybody exercising an independent thought or an independent voice against critical race theory, because critical race theory is the tool that they are using to convince people that America is the oppressor, and it's been the oppressor from its foundation. So its structures needs, need to be toppled and replaced with something better. Better, of course, I have in quotes, because that's the Marxist utopia that they want, which I guarantee it won't be better. It'll be far worse. You'll notice uh, this expression here, systemic oppression. Not that there can't be a bad boss here and there. Not that there's a bad cop here and there. A bad apple in the barrel that needs to be dealt with. But the, the whole system is racist systemically or institutionally. So it has to be toppled. Continuing uh, with the article... It says, after they have addressed their complicity in racial oppression, employees are encouraged to engage in the actions of, quote, building a race equity culture using a worksheet, close quote. Notice again the word not equality, but equity. The final paragraph here in the article says, and here is uh, the author commenting, on this training manual. He says, quote, in his very name, the Bank of America claims to represent the United States. Yet instead of promoting the American ideals, the company's executives have adopted radical pseudo-scientific concepts of critical race theory. Let me interrupt again and add this. Why does he call them pseudo-scientific concepts? Because it's relying on truths such as toddlers from age three to five are already racist. Well, how do they know that's even true? They're pretending it's scientific, but there's no scientific evidence to back that up. There's no data. So the author here uh, accurately labels this as, well, he uses the term pseudoscientific. I use the term psychobabble to promote a preordained outcome. The last couple of sentences in the article say they are pushing intensively ideological messages on their employees from race-based collective guilt to abolishing the police. Interrupting again. Gosh, I wonder where the abolition of the police force mentality came from. Well, it's being subjected on employees in the corporate world. The last sentence says, let the American public know and judge accordingly. 
again, the key point here is this is not volitional. This is mandatory. You take this training or you lose your job. Of course, if you lose your job because you won't take the training, then it's very easy to label you as, as a racist. And once you get labeled as a racist, you're going to have a very difficult time finding a job somewhere else. And so person after person after person is, is enforced to sort of bite their tongue and swallow this propaganda. And this is what's happening in our country related to critical race theory. America is systemically racist from its inception. Let me ask you just a simple question. If America is systemically racist from its inception, then how in the world did Barack Obama get popularly elected not once but twice in the United States? How did someone of color ascend to the highest office in the land by the popular will of the people if the people are racist from their core. It, the whole idea of a systemically racist country is absurd on its face. Beyond that, how do you get people like Oprah Winfrey? How does someone like that become a billionaire, billion with a B, in a country that's systemically and institutionally racist? I mean, that, that couldn't happen, could it? in an apartheid state. Beyond that, why is our border filled with people of different nationalities and shades of skin color? Why are they rushing through our border to get here just as fast as they can? I mean, why do we have a border crisis in this country? You know, I guarantee you, uh, there's no border crisis in Cuba or Saudi Arabia, except people trying to get out. Right now, as I speak, because of the incompetence and the bungling of what just happened in Afghanistan from the Biden administration, people aren't rushing into Afghanistan. They're trying to get out. America has the exact opposite problem. There's too many people that want to come in. Why are all of these people of all of these different nationalities fleeing their own countries to come to America if America isn't, isn't anything but a racist country. I mean, why, why would you flee here to get oppressed? I mean, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. And the reason it's illogical is it's propaganda. The American people are being propagandized to hate their own country, to divide the hegemony from the others, the people with perceived power from the others, the proletariat versus the, the bourgeoisie, in this case, a war between the races because a country that's divided against itself can't stand. And once the host culture becomes at war with itself, boy, she falls over pretty quick. And a progressive substitute called a utopia is introduced. Well, if the utopia is so great, then why are these people fleeing their utopias like Venezuela? which was the promised utopia, to come here to the United States, which, Amer which apparently is systemically and structurally and institutionally racist. Uh, I'm telling you, folks, this critical race theory is an absolute poison in our bodies 
and veins as Americans. And it's being used for very, very evil purposes that I've tried to explain in this prophecy update. Some people have criticized our prophecy update because we talk about these political things and they say, well, what does this have to do with prophecy? This has everything to do with prophecy. This is the destruction of the nation state, the weakening of the nation state, the attack on the foundation of the nation state, which God himself created at the Tower of Babel as preparatory for the Antichrist's one world project, the Antichrist restoring what was lost in Genesis 11 when God confounded the language. Let's uh, go to one final thing, and we can do this very fast, and with this we are finished. Uh, We've talked about Afghanistan, Iran. We have talked about Babylon. We have talked about the death of the religious exemption. We've talked about the public schools. We've talked about critical race theory. One other fast thing I want to mention here is America's spirituality. You know, one of the reasons that America is so open to all of these deleterious influences is we've moved away from our Christian heritage and our Christian foundation. You don't have to go far to see this. Here is a picture of the new chaplain of Harvard University. His name is Greg or Gregory Epstein. And the new, challenge, the new chaplain of Harvard University is, brace yourself, an atheist. Uh, I'm quoting here from an article from the New York Post, and it's written by Hannah Frischberg, if I'm pronouncing that right. And it's August 26, 2021. It says, Harvard's new chaplain is an atheist. And he is, quote, good without God. What does this particular article say? It says, 44-year-old Greg Epstein does not identify with any of those traditional religions himself. He is an atheist. Despite his disbelief in any higher power, Harvard chaplains felt Epstein, who, by the way, has a paper trail, He's the author of a book entitled Good Without God, What a Billion Non-Religious People Do Believe. That's the title of his book. The article continues, Epstein was a good choice for the position due to the young people's increasing lack of religiosity. And here's a quote from Epstein in the article, quote, there is a rising group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition, but still experience a real need for conversation and support and what it means to be a good human and live an ethical life, close quote. He, to me, he sounds an awful lot like a secular humanist. Continuing with the article, Epstein told the New York Times in an interview published Thursday. Here's what he said, quote, we don't look to a God for answers. He added, we are each other's answers. 
close quote. And then we have a, a quote from one of his um, sheep, I guess you could put it that way. One of his followers at Harvard University, quote, Greg's leadership isn't about theology, close quote, 20-year-old electrical engineering student Charlotte Nickerson told the Times. Quote, it's about cooperation between people of different faiths and bringing together people who wouldn't normally consider themselves religious, close quote. You know, you take a guy like this who has all of these doubts about the existence of God, and at the very, very best, you put him in the philosophy department. Because he doesn't believe in um, people looking to a God for answers. In other words, he doesn't believe in what Christianity teaches, a revealed religion from above. We believe what we believe as Christians, not because we're philosophizing about it and dialoguing about it, but we believe that God has reached down in the person of of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, and revealed himself to us. We believe that the 66 books of the Bible are a revelation from God himself to man. So as Christians, we don't have a lot of room for sitting around and dialoguing with each other to ascertain truth. Now, you can do that in a secular philosophy department, but it has no place in the chaplaincy or the spiritual leadership of America's leading academic institution, um, Harvard University. And what I want people to see is what has happened here at Harvard University is largely a microcosm of the whole culture. Because Harvard University and all of our Ivy League schools were started by the Puritans, whose motto was in these institutions, cursed be all learning, which is contrary to the cross of Christ. And the fact that an atheist would become a chaplain in such an institution demonstrates how far that institution has slipped from its moorings, its origins, and its underpinnings. And as go our institutions and our churches, so goes our country. In other words, it's sort of laughable. You look at this at first glance that this guy would become a head chaplain in that institution. But what has happened to him is just a microcosm of the culture at large. In fact, here is a screenshot of the first seal used by Harvard College. And the first motto in the seal was, In Christi Glorium which basically means to the glory of Jesus Christ and to the glory of God alone. That's why Harvard University was started. In fact, I I read somewhere that Harvard for the first, um, I don't know, 100 years or more of its existence did not even have somebody on the faculty that was not an ordained minister. And now Harvard has slipped to the point where not only is Christianity persona non grata there, but even the chaplain himself doesn't even acknowledge the existence of God. In fact, here are the initial rules of Harvard University. Do you want to hear them? Published in 1636, 
quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Here they're quoting the Bible that apparently Greg Epstein, the new chaplain, doesn't believe in. Quoting John 17, verse 3, continuing with the quote, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only, notice that word only, the only foundation, notice that word foundation, of all sound knowledge and learning. Notice the word sound. The quote continues, and seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Again, quoting the Bible, which Greg Epstein, their chaplain, doesn't believe in, Proverbs 2 and 3. The last uh, sentence there in this initial rules of Harvard University back in 1636, that's a century and a half before roughly the American Revolution, it says, quote, everyone shall exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give an account of his proficiency therein, close quote. I remember people telling me about the glory days of the my alma mater, Dallas Seminary, and how Charles Ryrie would literally uh, <laughs> come from around the corner as the students were walking from one class to the next and ask them, for verses to substantiate a biblical doctrine. Like he would say to the students, uh, virgin birth, and the students were supposed to give him some verses in the Bible that supported the doctrine of the virgin birth. Uh, the um, kenosis emptying of Christ, they're supposed to give him a verse. And that's why Dallas Seminary became what it became, because of its biblical origins. And I believe that Harvard University was the exact same way. You see it here in their rules in 1636. Everyone shall exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, close quote. Most Christians today don't read the scriptures twice a day. And if they read the scriptures twice a day, they're not, they don't know it well enough where they're willing and able to take an impromptu quiz at any moment from a professor. But that is the origin of Harvard University. That is the foundation of it. And look at it today, where their chaplain doesn't even believe in God, is an atheist. See, this is why the United States has slipped. Because these institutions that we were founded on have slipped as well. And as Christianity is demolished in its place come... Strange doctrines like critical race theory, like the denigration of the American flag in the classroom, instead saluting the gay pride flag or the Antifa flag, and like the Marxism and other things that are coming into the United States. So anyway, looking at all of these things, I hope you enjoyed this prophecy update. Afghanistan, Iran, Babylon, the death of religious exemption, what's going on in the public schools, the significance of critical race theory, and the decline of American spirituality and how it all relates to Bible prophecy. Well, Pastor, don't you have any good news? And I do.
we like to end with some good news, Titus 2.13, which says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, close quote. Regardless of what happens in our schools, regardless of what happens at the Bank of America, regardless of what happens at Harvard University, my hope as a Christian is not ameliorated one little bit because I have the hope that any moment Jesus can return and rescue me out of the world through the rapture. Um, Just a few closing announcements as we sign off. Uh, My new book on Babylon is out. It's called Babylon, the Prophetic Bookends of History, available on Amazon and at dispensationalpublishing.com. The ebook or Kindle version is eminent, and we referred to Babylon in our prior PPOV. We take the view that Babylon is meant to be interpreted literally, and so things happening in Iraq are prophetically significant, and if you want to understand that biblically, I mean, is this a true doctrine from the Bible? Um, I would recommend that book to you. Also, uh, this particular weekend, September 10th through 12th, I am going to be one of the uh, participants in a prophecy conference. And that prophecy conference is entitled The Perfect Storm. It's the Fall 2021 Great Lakes Prophecy Conference. It's going to be hosted by Calvary Chapel of Appleton in Wisconsin. And if you go to their website, I think it's CC Appleton. CC stands for Calvary Chapel. CC Appleton, I believe it's a .org. Um, You can find the details on that conference. And I'm happy to note that it will be live streaming. So it's Friday, September the 10th, and it goes into Saturday, September the 11th, and Sunday, September 12th. I believe I'm speaking bright and early, 9 a.m. on Saturday, September the 11th. And there's a host of other wonderful speakers there like Chris Quintana, T.A. McMahon, Uh, J.D. Farag is going to be presenting via video. Jim Fletcher, a great expert on Israel and the anti-Semitism that's coming into our churches, is going to be one of the presenters. Thomas Ice, uh, one of the great defenders of the pre-tribulational rapture, is going to be a presenter. Um, I'm sure there are others that I've just forgotten, but you can go to their website and see all the speakers and when they're presenting. They're going to have a Q&A session Saturday morning. Those are always a lot of fun, so I recommend that conference to you. Also, beginning Wednesday, September the 8th, we're going to be teaching verse by verse through the book of Zechariah as we start our Wednesday night Uh, midweek Bible study here at Sugarland Bible Church. The first couple of lessons will be an introduction, and then we will move verse by verse through the book. A lot of people have been asking for Zechariah to be taught, and I finally saw the opportunity and opening to do that, and so we are taking uh, taking that challenge. 
That study Wednesday night is going to be interrupted for just a brief moment, September 15th, Wednesday, and September 16th, as Sugarland Bible Church is going to be hosting the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics. And what that is, it's is a conservative group devoted to defending the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of Bible interpretation, which is something you need to consistently employ in order to be considered a dispensationalist. And so why do we use that method? This group meets under the leadership of Dr. Michael Stollard of the Friends of Israel Ministry, formerly of Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Pennsylvania, to defend uh, that method of interpretation. And so each speaker gets about a half an hour to present their paper, and then the rest of the time is devoted to cross-examination, question and answer. And so we at Sugarland Bible Church are going to be live streaming all of that, and it will be archived as well. And I would encourage you to go to the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics website to get the speaker's schedule or schedule of speakers because it literally goes from dawn till dusk, morning till night, uh, both on September 15th and September 16th. So it's a great opportunity to grow in your understanding of the Word of God. I also want to make people aware of the fact that we here at Pastor's Point of View have started a podcast. And so there on the screen, you'll see a screenshot of where you can locate that podcast. Um, I like to use Apple. So when you go to the Apple podcast um, uh, icon, just type in Andy Woods or Dr. Woods, Pastor's Point of View, something like that. It should pop up immediately, and I think we've got about four or five episodes uploaded onto it. This episode will be uploaded onto it uh, very, very fast. So you can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Podcast Addict, Pocket Casts, Listen Notes, Podcast Index, Amazon Music, Podchaser, Deezer, Player FM, RSS feed, and also add to that Apple. So get the Apple podcast app, and then where there's the magnifying glass for search, put my name in there, Andy Woods, and that it should come up right away. Um, sign up for our newsletter. Go to andywoodsministries.org at the top of the homepage. You'll see a way to sign up for our newsletter. And if you sign up for our newsletter, the show notes that we use will be delivered to your inbox weekly. Sign up for our YouTube channel, a free subscription. Click notify and subscribe or subscribe and notify and every time we upload a presentation, and this presentation will be uploaded to YouTube, and we upload our weekly teachings here at Sugarland Bible Church three times a week, those presentations are uploaded there. You can access all of our teaching at YouTube. And just in case we're yanked off YouTube because of our political incorrectness, 
sign up for our Rumble account. Just go to Rumble, put the settings over in um, channels, and put in Andy Woods Ministries, and it should take you right to our Rumble account. Next week, all things being equal, we should be back to normal. Pastor Jim will be back with me. And until then, stay safe out there. God love you. God bless you. We appreciate you. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for watching.